Thank you for downloading this sermon. We hope you've been blessed by this ministry. If you'd like to give back, please invest in the future of Clearnote Church through our capital campaign, Faithful Through All Generations. To make a donation, visit clearnotebloomington.com slash give. Would you open your Bibles, please, to Romans chapter 1. This week we'll be looking at verses 1 to 7. Romans, the first and the longest of the New Testament epistles. You know that we've been going through uh, the sort of pillars of the Reformation, and that we've looked at uh, the pillar of faith alone. We looked at the pillar of um, Scripture alone. What other one have we done? I think we've done three. What was it, Alex? I'm not the third. Oh, I know, the church reformed always reforming. There's a reason why. <laughs> that, that was the one I preached, so nobody knows, what did I preach on? You know? <laughs> My wife was the loudest laugh just then. <laughs> so one of the mottos, one of the pillars of the Reformation is the church reformed, always reforming. Okay. We're not going to stop this week, even though this is Reformation Sunday. Uh, the 500th anniversary is Tuesday uh, of Martin Luther uh, nailing the theses up on the door of the church. And uh, Jody is going to preach on one of the pillars of the Reformation was uh, the simplifying, the simplification of worship. And this is a basic uh, part of the Reformation in that Worship had become a performance. The music had been incredibly complicated. The, 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 the priests performed the sacrifice of Christ on the altar. That's why Protestant churches, well, Reformed churches never call it an altar because we don't believe we're sacrificing. We know we're not. All right, The sacrifice of Christ was done once for all, it says in Hebrews. Uh, but they were performing the sacrifice, and, and it was idolatry because then they said that they were feeding the people the, the very body and blood of Jesus Christ physically, a transubstantiation. But it was also their music. It was their liturgy. Um, they performed because the priests were completely ignorant, and so they were just blah, 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 blah. They didn't even know what they were saying much of the time. They were uneducated. They didn't know Scripture. They knew nothing. And then the music was unbelievably complicated. The art, the, the gold, the, the, the sculpture, everything. The reason that the Reformation was focused on the indulgences is that uh, St. Peter's Basilica was being built in Rome, and they had Michelangelo on his back painting the Sistine Chapel roof. It was all a performance. It was gold, it was beauty, it was... You know, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, right? You know, that's from the prophet. And, uh, and so one of the things that was stopped was complicated musical performance. And you say, well, we just had one. Yeah, that's a point. I don't know. We'll, we'll have to have an argument about that afterwards. But it's not characteristic of us to have complicated music. Sort of my high point in the last 10 years of our music was one Sunday when an older woman came for the first time. She was in her 60s. And afterwards she said she was so happy to be worshiping with us because the music was so loud for the first time in her life. She was just able to sing loudly even though she was a monotone and not worry that anybody would hear her. And that to me is, is perfect, you know, that, that you would be able to just beller. If that's all you can do, just beller, you know, like a whale, like a, like, like a bear. And that you join God's people in worship, not complicated parts. You spend one night a week learning how to sing. So Jody's going to preach on how the Reformation, as a pillar of the Reformation, changed worship from a performance to the people of God together, simplifying their worship, their liturgy, their music, uh, the sacraments, everything had a principle of simplicity that was brought back to worship in spirit and in truth, okay? 
There is another part of the Reformation that is a pillar that we don't often think of, and that is the pillar of restoring the beauty and dignity of Christian marriage in the home. At the time of the Reformation, the Middle Ages had turned into a... um, Well, the Middle Ages had done to, to Christian faith what the scribes and Pharisees had done to Jewish faith at the time of Christ, where they had made it so complicated to please God with all the rules about washing and ceremonies and special days and and how far you could walk and all this stuff that the only people who were able to be holy at the time of Jesus were the people who, funny thing, were the priests and scribes and Pharisees. Because they were the only people that had the time and, and, and and didn't have to work for a living. So the people that worked for a living, like shepherds, they were nothing. It was understood that they could never be clean. And at that time, to be clean and to be godly were the same thing. All right? And so they had made this caste system where you had the scribes and Pharisees and Sadducees and the rich people who were able to pay for Sabbath goyim who would push the button of the elevator because you didn't want to get your finger dirty, right? The, the, the orthodoxy in New York City, you know, they pay people you know, to, to, to push the button of the elevator, and they're called Sabbath goyim, okay? And they go to hell so that you can go to heaven. Are you all with me? They're the ones that you pay to do your dirty work so that you don't have to do it and can be righteous. Well, the same thing was going on in the Middle Ages, In the Middle Ages, the the, the nuns and the monks were the ones that you paid to be holy. And you, meanwhile, had to work with your hands. You had to get dirty. (laughs) And so guess what nuns and monks are? Or a better way of saying it is, guess what? They aren't. They aren't married. None of them are married. And so the only people that are holy are the religious, right? That's what they call them. And the religious are the people who never get married. Because you all know that you can't be married and be holy, right? Every young mother knows this. Every young mother knows she's not holy. (laughs) How would you know it without young children? You know, that's the principal reason you have young children, is to show you as young mothers, despite the adoration and worship of your husband for you, some of you, that, that you really aren't holy. Right? Well, the mothers are smiling at me. There's an excellent book written by a guy named Stephen Osment, who is an historian, and the book is called When Fathers Ruled, and it's about how the reformers restored the dignity to marriage and family life. This is a pillar of the Reformation. This is the gift of the reformers. The reformers got married and had children and were holy, And they were about as holy as you are in having marriage and children. But you know how how holy that is? That's a whole heck of a lot more holy than the monasteries. Our married clergy are sinners, but they're a heck of a lot better than the Roman Catholic priests. Are you all with me? Do I need to be more specific? Now, this week... So we've gone through the church reformed, always reforming. That's a pillar of the Reformation. We don't just lay garlands on the tombs of our prophets who are dead and then stone the living ones. We honor the living prophets. Only faith alone, okay? Scripture alone. This week we come to grace alone. And then we'll go to Jody and the the simplifying of worship. And then, I don't know, we might have one more. I'm not sure. This week, we're on grace alone. This is a pillar of the Reformation. Grace alone. Romans chapter 1, verses 1 to 7. Paul, a bondservant of Christ Jesus, called as an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, concerning his son, who was born of a descendant of David according to the flesh, who was declared the Son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead, according to the Spirit of holiness, Jesus Christ our Lord. 
through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith among all the Gentiles for his name's sake, among whom you also are the called of Jesus Christ. To all who are beloved of God in Rome, called as saints. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. This is the word of the Lord. Now, this is, the, this is a, uh, an introduction to the letter, all right? The first seven verses are him saying, I'm the one writing the letter, and here are my credentials. So he's giving his credentials. And look at what the credentials are. Could you take me to verse one? Two? Yeah, thanks. Paul... So his credentials are that he's Paul. Well, we, we knew that, right? And then he says, a bondservant of Christ Jesus. So that's his credential. His credential is that he's a bondservant, first of all. Now, what is a bondservant? Who knows? What's a bondservant? What a bondservant is, is it's the way that you carefully avoid saying slave. Okay? A bondservant is the guy that if you get put in the county jail, you call him up and he brings your bond. He's my bondservant. Right? No. The Greek word there is doula. Okay? And the Greek word doula is humiliating and embarrassing and um, demeaning. And so what is the right word to use in English? Slave. You know, if you write somebody in Charlottesville, Virginia right now and call yourself a bondservant, nobody will take offense. But if you write them and say, I'm a slave, eh, that, that, that has legs, that'll walk. Why? Well, because it's strikingly humiliating it, it, it is very, very demeaning, and it was just as demeaning at the time of the Apostle Paul. Remember, he was a Roman citizen. He was no, you know, he had an American passport, or now a Singaporean passport. So what is a doula? Well, my wife is a doula. How many now? 55? I can't hear. Oh, 65. So 65 times my wife has gone into a room where a woman is doing the hardest work she'll ever do in her life, which is to give birth to a baby. She's in labor. And my wife is a doula, which is, you know, we brought the word into English. That means she goes in the room, and she is there to be the slave of the woman who is in labor. Okay? She is there to know when her back needs to be scratched, when she needs to be encouraged, when she needs water. You know, she is a slave of the woman in labor. And you know, a lot of doulas today are not really doulas. There are a lot of doulas today who it's not actually about the woman giving birth, it's about them. They insert themselves into that room and begin to show you how excellent they are. Right? But you don't want to do it like that, do you? What you want to do to do is shut up and just do what you want because you're in labor. Can it please be about the woman who's in labor? You know, that's what the whole home birth movement is about. Can we please just have a doctor catch the baby? You know, stop, stop, he isn't here yet. He stopped for a chicken sandwich. <laughs> you know, that's what happened with Taylor. That's why he is the way he is. <laughs> a doula is a servant, a slave of the woman who is in labor. And that's what she's there to do. And Paul says what? He says, a slave, a doula of Christ Jesus.
And so the Apostle Paul, we know it's not about him. Because right out of the gate, he's written not Charlottesville, but Rome, and said, I'm a slave. Rome. He's written Washington, D.C., and he said, a slave. I'm a slave of Christ Jesus. And then called as an apostle. What's an apostle? An apostle is a diplomat. An apostle is a representative. Uh, somebody who simply exists to do the will of the person that sent him. So he's a sent one who's there to do the will. And so Paul, a slave of Christ, called as an apostle. Jesus Christ has sent him to carry his message. What is the message set apart for the gospel of God? So Paul, a slave of Christ Jesus, called as a a messenger and set apart for the message, which is the gospel of God. Gospel means good news. All right. This is not the good news of Nero. When Nero would have, they'd have a child, or he'd ascend to the, the imperial throne. There would be a, a, an evangel sent out to the world, a good message that he'd had a child. That he, you know, but this is not a good message of Nero. This is the gospel of God. So this is a good message from God. Now, do you see the authority in that first verse? Paul, a slave of Christ Jesus. The word Christ means anointed or uh, Messiah. So it, it is in Greek a parallel to the word Messiah. Messiah means anointed. So Paul, a slave of anointed Jesus, called. What is a call? Well, a call is what you don't want to take on a phone because it's... Um, it's imperious. It's, it's like, you answer me. That's why y'all do texts. You resist anybody calling you. You will not be on anybody else's schedule. But Paul is called. <laughs> Paul, a bondservant, anointed Jesus, called, and called not to tell us what he thinks, you know, called to, to come share with us his thoughts, no, called as an apostle, okay? He's to take his thoughts. Who? Anointed Jesus, set apart for that. He's called, he's a slave, he's an apostle, and he's set apart. So even though it is about Paul and his authority, it's not about the authority of Paul at all. It's, it's about the authority of his master. And the authority, it, it oozes out of that verse, Okay? For the gospel of God, which, and so which indicates that we're now going into opening up. What is the gospel of God? Well, first of all, which he, God, promised beforehand through his prophets. In other words, this gospel is a fulfillment of the Old Testament. What God said through his prophets of the Old Testament, now the apostle Paul is carrying that same message. And so you think about... um, what that message was in terms of the Old Testament. And it's phrases that are all through the Old Testament, like Bethlehem of Ephrathah, God will provide the lamb. You remember that when Abraham says that to Isaac when he's on the altar? He shall bruise his head. You remember in the Garden of Eden? Behold, a virgin shall conceive. He had no form or beauty that we should desire him. And then Psalm 2, what? Kiss the son. The Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. And so you look all through the Old Testament, and Spurgeon said, everywhere in the Old Testament, you find the shortest path from the Old Testament to God. I mean, to Jesus. And so what the Apostle Paul is saying here is that the gospel is what he, God, promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. In other words, this Jesus and the good news about Jesus is the fulfillment of everything that the prophets of God said in the Old Testament. Now, what were they saying in the Old Testament? Well, concerning his son. It has to do with the son of God. 
And this son of God, what? Well, he was born of a descendant of David according to the flesh. You remember in the New Testament and the Gospels that it gives genealogies of Jesus. And those genealogies connect Jesus through the flesh to King David. He's of the Davidic line, all right? And so according to the flesh, he's a descendant of David. Okay, keep going. Who was declared, speaking about Jesus again, who was declared the Son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead? So he was prophesied in the Old Testament by the prophets, I'm an apostle, a slave of God, who carries this message today. And what is the message? Well, he was not just a descendant of David according to the flesh, but he was also the Son of God, declared this with power by the resurrection from the dead. So in other words, the center of God's vindication of his Son was the resurrection of the dead. There's no point at which God's approval of his Son is more clear than when, after three days, he brings him out of the grave. But notice something. It says, by the resurrection from the dead. And it's not limited to Jesus. But it also includes all those who are the dead in Christ, all those who have faith in the gospel, who will also be raised with him. And so... When we think of the resurrection of the dead, we don't just think about Jesus, but we also think about all those who belong to him who also will be brought up from the dead. So, of course, this is the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ on the third day. But it's also the resurrection of all those who believe in him. We, too, will share in the resurrection of the dead. We will come with Christ Jesus by the power of the Holy Spirit out of the grave. And so it's important as we read about the resurrection of the dead that we see that our mothers will share in this resurrection of the dead, and particularly at this time, that you remember that your grandmother and your grandfather will share in this resurrection of the dead. Because he lived, all of us who die in Christ will live. And so the grave doesn't have the fear and scariness to us that it does to those who grieve without any hope. And so you always remember that about your grandma, okay? That if God takes her, God will raise her, just as he raised his own son. So you have that hope. We all have loved ones who are in the grave, and those who are headed there, some of us more quickly than others probably. Um, And we don't grieve as those without any hope. Because he lived, Jesus, because God vindicated him, God will raise all of those who belong to him, all of them. As I get older, the end of the Apostle Creed, the Apostles' Creed means more to me. I believe in the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Who was declared the Son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead, according to the spirit of holiness, Jesus Christ our Lord. The spirit of holiness is the way that the Jews referred to the Holy Spirit. And so the Apostle Paul continues in verse 5, through whom we have received grace and apostleship. Through Jesus, we have received. Now, what does he mean by this word, we? You and I have not received apostleship, have we? No, although we too are called to be God's agents of reconciliation, we too are called to be God's messengers of the good news of Jesus, but we have not been given apostleship by God in the way the Apostle Paul is using it here. So what does he mean by we? Well, in front of apostleship is the other thing given which the Romans and the Apostle Paul both receive, which is grace. And so you and I, if we have faith in Jesus, have received this same grace today, just as God's slave, the Apostle Paul, had received it. 
So the Apostle Paul is including all of those he's writing to and saying, we have received. And then he says grace, and then he says apostleship. Now, when you study commentaries, when you read commentaries about a text of Scripture, um, they have a lot of things to say that you have to think about, and it's very typical that one commentary will disagree with another one. And at this point in the book of Romans, uh, one, of the re- one of the writers that I read last night was saying that these two verses are some of the hardest verses in all of Scripture to interpret. And this particular place is one of those things that's hard to interpret. Why? Well, it's the word we. How can he say we and refer to the apostles? It's easy to say we and refer to grace, and it would be inclusive of him and the people he's writing to. But it doesn't make sense to say we have received apostleship because they're not apostles, right? And so you have guys going on and on in the commentaries explaining that maybe the Apostle Paul's just speaking about himself with the royal we, do you know, the imperial we, the we, you know, what, what President Trump would say, we. You know, he's talking about himself. <laughs> I mean, we all know that, right? He's talking about himself, right? We all live here. <laughs> okay. But he says, we. And so this is the queen. The queen says, we, and the whole kingdom knows that they're included, even though she's talking about herself. And so some of them say the apostle Paul will frequently in his writing say we when he means me. But it's a gentle way of saying me. You don't get you know, hit in the face by him as an individual. Some of them say that he's referring to the other apostles and himself. Now, why are they saying this? Well, they're saying this because the word grace is in front, and then it says apostleship, and so they want to very rigidly say that you have to interpret the word in some some way that it's plural for both grace and for apostleship. Okay. And this is the kind of stuff that commentaries are filled with. And listen, anybody that speaks... Anybody that writes, anybody that reads, knows that the Apostle Paul can write, we have received grace and apostleship. And people aren't stupid. They know that they received grace, and they know they didn't receive apostleship. Right? And that's how language works. We don't need to get all uptight about how this word we works there in the text. Yes, everyone he's writing to has received grace because they believe in Jesus Christ. They're a part of the church. No, everyone hasn't received apostleship. Yes, he's received apostleship. Yes, the other apostles have received apostleship. And so when he writes this, through whom we have received grace and apostleship, we just go with the flow because we know what he means. We know that we have received grace. We know he's an apostle. And what has that grace and apostleship been given for? Well, the purpose is what? To bring about the obedience of faith. And if they went wacko in explaining what we means, they go wacko wacko when it comes to the obedience of faith. Why? Well, because what is the obedience and what is the faith? What is the obedience of faith? Now, what can they be? Well, one of the things they can be is that God commands us to believe in Jesus Christ. And so the Philippian jailer is commanded, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. And so the obedience of faith, somebody says to you, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and then somebody says the obedience of faith, and you could understand how obeying the command, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, could be referred to as the obedience of faith. Put your faith in Jesus Christ. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Put your faith in Jesus Christ. The obedience of faith. I told you, put your faith in Jesus Christ. And so faith is obedience because God commands it, right? God commands you. 
Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden. I will give you rest. By the God commands us believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. This is the work that pleases God. What is that work? The work is to believe in Jesus, his son. Now, we all get this, right? And I, for one, find this sweet because I'm the kind of dude who, if you gave me a choice, I wouldn't believe. You know the song we sing, I, I would not, how, how does that? Yeah, my Lord, I did not choose you, but you chose me. It is such a relief to be told what to do. Have you ever had a husband where you have a date night, you get in the car, and he says to you, where would you like to go to dinner? And it is the universal experience of husbands. The wife says, I don't know, honey, where would you like to go? And it's like, lover, would you please just tell me, where do you want to go? You know, in America today, because wealthy people delineate themselves by their choices. So, you know, we could go through here and take pictures of every person's hair. And we could write books about what every one of your hair means. Hair is very clear in its communication. Really clear. We could take pictures of your shoes, and if it was Stephen and me, you could write books about our shoes. <laughs> right? You choose your shoes carefully, don't you? Some of you, you choose them for comfort, and some of you don't. <laughs> and so in a culture where there is an unbelievable amount of wealth, we focus on choice. Because the more sophisticated our choices, the more we're able to communicate to the people that we want to hang with that we're one of them. You understand this? And so choice is the supreme good in America today. And so this is why the gospel is actually preached to us in this way. God has done everything he can do. And there's only one thing he can't do. And that is believe. And so he's brought you right up to the edge. And then he says, believe. And that's what he has to wait for you to do. Right? Lord, I did not choose you. You chose me. No, 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 no. No, 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 no. God commands us to believe. And then we hear Augustine, the great father of the church, saying, Lord, Command me as you will, and then what? And then give me what you command. Command me the way you want, and then give me what you command. And so belief and faith, they're sort of the same. And the faith of obedience obviously includes the obedience of believing in Jesus Christ. But is that all it means? No, it's not. It couldn't possibly be all it means because we are called to holiness and to produce good fruit. And so I've, I've told many of you that when I'm cutting grass, I always listen to the book of Romans, right? And... So I've listened to it, I don't know how many times now. And every single time I get to this point at the beginning of the book, I hear the obedience of faith. And I don't have this one-way road thing in my brain when I hear that where I think the obedience of faith, and it always goes from obedience to faith, and I obey by believing, and Jesus says, believe in the word, this is the work, that, and so the obedience of faith, obedience of faith. But what I always find myself doing is flipping backwards from faith to obedience, because they're, they're bound so tightly together in the text, the obedience of faith, that I always find myself meditating on the fact that obedience is faith. You know, how do you separate obedience and faith? The obedience of faith, right? It's not simply an intellectual assent 
to the truth of the gospel that Jesus died for our sins. But it is faith in Jesus Christ and in his work in me which produces holiness because we're called to be holy. And so it's not a one-way street, you know. You're not going to get a ticket for going backwards to obedience from faith. And that is what the Apostle Paul means here. There's no question in my mind. The Apostle Paul, by using that construction, wants to inoculate us against the antinomian, anti-law, the sin that grace may abound, the cheap uh, intellectual assent, the, 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 uh, the, the disgusting condition of the church today, which is devoid of repentance. The Apostle Paul, when he uses the phrase, the obedience of faith, is calling us to obedience. He's not calling us to cheap grace. He's linking obedience and faith together so tightly that nobody can think that they've obeyed by having faith if their life is not holy. You can't do that. You can't have true faith and not have obedience. The obedience of faith. You can't do it. The obedience of faith. You can't separate the two. to bring about the obedience of faith among all the Gentiles for his name's sake. So this is a wonderful truth that God's salvation is not just for the Jews, but for, its, for all the Gentiles. But it's not for the sake of the glory of the Gentiles. It's for his name's sake. And that's a way of saying it's for the glory of God. It's not for your glory. It's not for the Romans' glory. It's not for Goim glory. It's not for Jewish glory. It's for his glory. Verse 6, among whom you also are the called of Jesus Christ. So now he's, he's bringing his conclusion or his, uh, his introduction to an end, to a conclusion. And he comes back to the Romans and he includes them in this. And he says, among whom you also are the called of Jesus Christ. So we know from the beginning that he's called by God. He's set apart to the apostleship. He's set apart to preach the good news. And then he says, among whom you also are the called of Jesus Christ. Again, what does it mean to be called? Yoo-hoo! Tam! I have, a, I have an album that I love. It's, it's called Poco Deliverin'. Richie Furry and those dudes, and it's a live album. But there's one point in the album that always makes me wince. And some of you who have been here long enough know what I'm going to say. And it's the point where they sing in such a way that as I'm listening to it, I hear my mother go, Tim! And it's as clear as a bell. You know, in the middle of the song, there's my mother. And it just makes me go like this. Why? Well, because my mother never stopped Never stop making me work. Never. I mean, you could not sit down in my home without having my mother out there transplanting Iris and going in the station wagon with her to pick up railroad ties and setting the table and cleaning up after dinner. You just never got to sit down in my mother's house. And I always have told you, or I've told you sometimes that my brother David, I have a picture of David and Nathan, and Nathan would sit on my dad's lap and Dad would rub his hand up and down inside Nathan's shirt, you know, just feeling his skin. My dad was really tactile, and he loved us, you know. And on the floor behind my dad's uh, chair, right, was David reading, you know, like this hand on his fist reading. And so I would always describe the beauty of the home when my dad finally sort of came back to health emotionally, you know. It's Nathan on his lap and David on the floor. And one day, a few years ago, David said to me, Tim, do you know why I was always on the floor behind Dad? And I said, no, why? I just thought it was sweet. He loved being close to my dad. He said, no. He said, your mother loved me to be there, and that's the only place I could be without her calling me to come and work. And so if I read under Dad's chair, she never said, Tim! Tim! 
So here's the question. The question is, has God called you? That's the question. Has God called you? We'll just act like we didn't hear that. If we're going to talk about choice, how rich people multiply choices, we're not going to talk about call. Because a call is insistent. It doesn't shut up. A call will be obeyed. Now, those of you who do not yet believe in Jesus... Let me just say that those of us here who believe in Jesus don't point back and say, I accepted Jesus. I did not choose him. He chose me. He called me. And when the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords calls you, what are your options? You know, it's interesting. In between the services, Pastor Carell and I met with a man who has not submitted himself to God. And we did what we do again and again and again and again, which is to call people to God. That's what an apostle does. That's what a pastor does. You call people to God. What a sweet thing. The apostle Paul, in writing the church in Romans, he says, among whom you also are called. Right? You are the called of Jesus Christ. And then he ends the intro by saying, to all who are beloved of God. So what is it to be called of Jesus? It's to be loved by God. I think so often with those of you who are international students of the difficulty of being in America and all the wealth and all the sexual decadence and pride of the United States and so you come to church and there are a lot of people here. And you think, well, this must be what it is to be American. But it's not. This is not what it's to be American. Um, To be American is to be sexually decadent and to be rich. I don't know. what's, What's the Chinese word for decadent? Huh? In guang? I think it's very hard to think of being among the privileged of China who are able to come over to the U.S. and study and to get the wealth of American education and to not think about going back to China as being, I don't know what the word valedictory or sort of, you know, the, the completion of your elitism. You want to translate that? You know what I'm saying? Well, you look, look, you look at the, the cars outside of, uh, what's it called, uh, where we get our takeout? Dragon Express. It's, it's the cream of the cream. It's the money. More billionaires in Asia now than there are in the United States. And I preach Jesus. Jesus. And it, I think it would be very hard to not think that this is just one more wealth of America. You know what I'm saying? And then you think about your ancestors in China. Did they know God? And if they didn't know God, it says here, to all who are beloved of God. And so those who are called of God are those who are loved by God. And so you're, you're always put in this pressure cooker where you have to you have to make a decision about whether you're loved by God. All right? Whether you're loved by God, whether you're called by God. But to make that decision is 
to make judgments about those in your nation who are not hearing the gospel. And so you're caught. But this is exactly what was true of the Romans at the time. Rome was filled with filth. The emperor at the time was Nero. Have you ever read anything about Nero? This is unbelievably wicked, just like America. But the Christians were those who heard about Jesus and believed. And why did they believe they believed? Because they were loved by God. You know, your condition in this, in America, is, is, is very much like those of us who come from families where we have believed in Jesus and our siblings haven't. Right? We all have that, right? In all of our families, there are those who believe and those who don't believe. And we cover it up. You know, everybody says, well, I'm a Christian, you know. But the fact is, in our homes, as we grow up, in our children, we'll see this in our children, there are those that God passes over. He doesn't call. Come on. We all know this is true. And we have to make a decision whether we're going to listen to the call of God and the love of God and give ourselves to obedience and to faith, or whether we're going to harden our hearts, because what right does God have to choose me and not choose them? What right does God have to set his affection on me and not on them? Are you all with me? So it's really no different between nations than it is in a home between brothers and sisters. We have to look at the sovereignty of God. God does not apologize for his choice of one and his non-choice of another. And when you do believe, what do you do? You walk around and say, (laughs) I did choose him, he did not choose me. You know, do we go around talking about how our moral perfection, our, 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 our ability to study hard, you know, our, our, our joyful embracing of our mother saying, Tim, which it was never there. <laughs> you know, I was never joyfully embracing my mother telling me to do one more thing. All right? God sets his love on us and then he calls us. And from eternity past, God chose that you would be in a church today hearing the gospel from eternity past. And that's his prerogative. He doesn't owe that to your brother and sister. He doesn't owe that to China. He doesn't owe that to Donald Trump. You are here because of his sovereign decision. And he calls you and he says, come to me. Now, we have to end. To all who are beloved of God in Rome, called as saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and Lord Jesus Christ. So when we come to Jesus by faith, when we give ourselves to the obedience of faith, then what do we do? We point to the grace of God. We don't point to anything we did. Because we didn't do anything. And with some of you, it's more clear than with others of us, you know. With some of us, it's so clear. You, you listen to life stories, and you can just see the hand from heaven coming down, the hound of heaven, you know. You know? And it's so beautiful to see how God plucks us from the whole of our wickedness and deadness. Right? And it's his grace. What is grace? Grace is unmerited favor. We don't deserve it. Let me close by reading from Ephesians 2, where it opens this up. It says, But God, being rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions. Dead. Are you all with me? Dead. Dead in our sin, even when we were dead in our sin, made us alive together with Christ. And then this little sort of, <laughs> what would you call it? An, ex- an exclamation. This little exclamation. By grace you have been saved. And raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the ages to come, 
he might show the surpassing riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. What this means is that all through eternity, you and I are going to be a visible exhibit in heaven of, of our deadness and of God's richness in mercy. We're just going to give testimony to God's grace. Okay? It's my daughter-in-law, Heidi, playing the bassoon. And she's saying, stop, Tim, stop. So the final question for us this morning is, has God called you, loved you, and are you an exhibit of his grace? Is your life graceful? I'm not asking whether you know what perfume to wear. I'm not asking if you know not to take a bite before the hostess does. That's a perversion of grace. Grace is when you do something that goes totally against your nature because God made you do it. And so, is God's grace clear in you? You're not superior to anybody. You're not superior to anybody. And so I call all of you to Jesus. Acknowledge your sin and plead with him for mercy. You don't deserve it. But God says that he listens to all those who call upon him in truth. Let's pray.